Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Russia's cut-off of gas to Poland and Bulgaria and examine the possibility of further disruptions of supplies to the energy-dependent European countries reliant on Russian oil and gas. Joining us from the UK is Jonathan Stern, Distinguished Research Fellow and the founder of the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies Natural Gas Research Program. He is Honorary Professor at the Centre for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee and since 2011 has been the EU Speaker for the EU-Russia Gas Advisory Council. The author of several books, the most recent of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas, We will discuss what alternative supplies might come from the Eastern European and Algeria and why oil and gas from Russia continues to flow across Ukraine in the middle of a war where pipelines are easy targets. Then we'll examine one of the most revealing episodes to emerge from the traumatic events on January the 6th, which was first mentioned by Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker in their book I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, and recently was described by Congressman Jamie Raskin, who recounted when Secret Service agents whisked Vice President Pence down into the Capitol basement and tried to get him into his limo. Raskin said Pence suspected the agents were reporting to Trump's Secret Service agents, at which point Pence then, to quote Raskin, uttered what I think are the six most chilling words of this entire thing I've seen so far. I'm not getting into that car. Raskin went on to say Pence, quote, knew exactly what this inside coup they had planned for was going to do. Joining us is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he supervised work on security matters. He is the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Then finally, we'll look into the possibility Putin wants to expand the war into Moldova following bombings that Zelensky claims are FSB provocations in false flag operations. Joining us is an expert on Moldova, Jonathan Katz, Director of Democracy Initiatives and a senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. From 2014 to 2017, He was the Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau at the United States Agency of International Development and prior to that served as a Staff Director of the Europe Subcommittee of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and as a Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary in the International Organization Affairs Bureau at the United States Department of State. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Jonathan Stern, who is a Distinguished Research Fellow and the founder of the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies Natural Gas Research Program. He is also 
our Honorary Professor at the Centre for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee. And since 2011, he has been the EU Speaker for the EU-Russia Gas Advisory Council and is the author of several books, most recently The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Stern. Thank you very much. Well, from your position in the UK, uh, Jonathan, what does the Russian cutoff of gas to Poland and Bulgaria mean? Is there worse to come? Okay, so this all arose when President Putin issued a decree about three weeks ago which said that uh, so-called unfriendly countries which imported gas from uh, Russia had to pay in rubles. Uh, at the moment, they pay in either their own currencies or in euros. And this decree was interpreted by some as a breach of contract, and therefore they decided they were not going to um, uh, comply with it. Um, others in Europe have said, well, it might or it might not be a breach of contract, but we're willing to comply with it. But both Poland and Bulgaria have essentially said, it's a breach of contract and we're not going to comply with it. But these two countries have a very special situation. Their long-term contract with Gazprom runs out this year. So in any case, they would be stopping importing Russian gas by the end of this year. Most of the other countries that import Russian gas have contracts which extend at least to 2030 and some beyond that. So... Um, it is true that Russia has cut off these countries because they have declined to pay in rubles. But the situation is a little bit unusual in comparison with most of the other European countries. But it's hardly a coincidence, is it, that Poland is playing an active role in arming and supporting Ukraine? Well, no, I mean, obviously there are political issues at stake, um, but I think the most I keep coming back to this because you see for countries like Germany, Italy, France to, to to decline to pay in rubles and therefore risk being cut off from Russian gas would be a very, very serious blow to their economies. And, you know, there's been talk by, for example, the German chancellor of the losses of hundreds of thousands of jobs, a very substantial hit to GDP growth. Um, Poland and Bulgaria um, have been able to take this position without really hurting their economies. So the the, the question which I guess we're all thinking is, well, uh, are others going to follow them? And at the moment, it looks like probably not. But Germany basically told Russia that no way they're going to pay in rubles and the gas is still well, flowing. Well, the gas is still flowing. Um, what we understand, but we can't, we haven't been able to verify this, is that many companies, whatever their governments have said, are now paying using this ruble. It's, it's a little bit of a complicated uh, mechanism. Basically, what they do is they don't actually give Russia or Gazprom rubles. What they have to do is to open a special account at Gazprom Bank. They pay their euros into that special account, and that special account then uh, automatically uh, transfers the euros into rubles, which are then paid to Gazprom. So it's a, it's a little bit of a complicated mechanism. Um, and the question you know, that, that arose was, well, are these... Are these companies obliged to do this by law, to which many, 
But Nossal answered, no, they're not obliged to do it. They can claim it's a breach of contract and they can refuse to do it. But then they run the risk that Russia will cut them off. Now, we don't know because the next payment date for many of these companies is not for another two weeks. We don't know how many will follow the example of the Poles and the Bulgarians. Um, and if they do, whether they will be cut off. But we'll find that out in the next two, maybe three weeks. But still, what, a billion dollars a day goes from Germany to Russia? Uh, I think, well, it's complicated because the price changes every day. Um, I think it, it's it's somewhere between 700 million and a billion. Uh, well, uh, yeah, euros, dollars. I mean, it's, again, there's an exchange rate issue. But yes, I think you're a little bit high there, but it's a, it, it's not far off. Right. But that's the paradox, is it? We've never had in geopolitics before, in fact, victims or allies of victims of aggression are paying the aggressor. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, again, this is, in terms of geopolitics, um, we've, had, we've had situations where um, people, where companies and therefore countries have been paying for oil for against countries which have committed aggression but i think the difference here is that this is uh, this is kind of an internal european transaction um and of course uh, russia uh, and before that the soviet union being the principal strategic threat there's always been that debate uh, not so much about whether we should pay them, because at the moment prices are so high that they're getting an extraordinary amount of money. The really big debate over the last 40 years is, well, should you be importing uh, an important strategic raw material from a country that is your principal strategic adversary? Because they could cut you off. Um, and again, um, this has kind of become some this situation nobody ever anticipated. It would have been extremely difficult to anticipate it. But there's money changing hands of a very large, you know, very, very large quantities of money changing hands. But unfortunately for many European countries, the consequences of an immediate as opposed to a gradual diminution of imports from Russia would be very serious. And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Stern, who is in the UK. He's a distinguished research fellow and the founder of the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies Natural Gas Research Program and an honorary professor at the Center for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee. And since 2011, he has been the EU speaker for the EU-Russia Gas Advisory Council, and is the author of several books, most recently of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. But, Jonathan Stone, what explains why Ukraine, for example, has a major pipeline transiting in its country, and an oil pipeline too, I believe, and it's above ground and an easy target, and it has not been touched? Uh, I think two things explain it. Firstly, the Ukrainians have guarded it very well because they earn a lot of money from transiting Russian oil and gas. And secondly, the Russians do not want any, any destruction of these kind of facilities because they, well, firstly, they are an important symbol of Russian exports. And secondly, if 
those facilities are damaged, then we will get into a very serious discussion about whose fault that was, therefore who should pay, who should pay damages because contracts cannot be fulfilled. But I mean, uh, uh, sort of a comment on your question is, it is remarkable with everything that's happening in Ukraine that these facilities have not apparently suffered any damage. But the nuclear power plants, there was really reckless behaviour on the part of the Russians, both at Chernobyl and the other big nuclear plant, which I believe is the biggest nuclear plant in, in Europe. Right, right. I mean, uh, again, that is a, that I completely agree with you. That is a, but electricity is not, um, unlike oil, gas and coal, electricity is not a commodity which is traded very free, very freely across Europe. Uh, Russia does it or has done, has exported some electricity to Europe, but not in any significant quantities. It is the it is the trade in fossil fuels that is the really valuable set of of, of commodity transactions. So, in terms of Poland and uh, and I guess also Bulgaria, what kind of storage do they have? Do they have any some backup here that they're not going to immediately be cut off because? It's well, still yeah, the winter, I, mean, I guess, or it's getting into spring. I just don't know it's what the... Get, it's, getting, it's getting well into spring, and we've had a relatively warm winter in um, a winter season in, in Europe. So Poland has storage, but critically, it also has an operating liquefied natural gas terminal and is able to import uh, LNG through that terminal. It, as I said, in any case, it anticipated completely, completely stopping imports of Russian gas by the end of this year. Um, so it, it, in fact, was completely prepared for um, a cessation of deliveries. So this this interruption or, or refusal to to supply is not really a big uh, inconvenience. And both the government and the company PGNIG have said that. Now, the Bulgarians are in a different situation. They have a small storage, gas storage, but, and they do have a, a small contract to, do, to import gas from Azerbaijan. What I'm not clear about is where they will replace the Russian gas um, that they are currently importing from. They could increase uh, imports from Azerbaijan as long as there's uh, available gas there. And they have a link to Greece, and therefore they could import liquefied natural gas, which Greece, um, which, which arrives in Greece uh, through that pipeline. The problem is, I'm not clear whether that, whether the link between Greece and Bulgaria has been completed. I know it's under construction, but I think the Bulgarians are in a slightly more complicated situation than than Poland. And what about the gas discoveries in the eastern Mediterranean? Are they coming online anywhere? Well, the gas has been discovered, apart from Egypt, which is a you know, very, very well-established province, a lot of gas has been discovered in Israel. Gas has been discovered in Cyprus. And, and, and the um, Egyptian discoveries are, are, are really you know, well-established. Um, and the country has begun to export liquefied natural gas again. Um, it stopped for a while and started was an importer and then become an exporter again. The Israeli situation is complicated. Israel exports gas to Egypt via pipeline. But it's been very much debated as to whether 
Israel, which has a big potential surplus, could export gas to Europe either by pipeline or as LNG. That really has made no progress. Um, similarly, the development of the Cyprus uh, fields has made very little progress. And the reason for that is these are, these are expensive gas fields to develop. And whether you want to create a, a, a liquefied gas facility or whether you want to build a long pipeline, undersea pipeline to Europe, you're talking quite a lot of money to do that. And, and the, the other problem is uh, now it's taken so long to decide and still waiting for a decision as to whether to do that. By the time you would build either of those facilities, you'd be close to 2030 and they would need to run for about 20 years in order to recoup their costs. And of course, that runs into big problems with European commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and achieve net zero targets. So at the moment, it looks like East Med gas is going to be probably locked into the East Med and used by those regional countries rather than exported in large quantities. And what about Algeria? I believe they cut off their supplies to Spain, did they not? Well, Algeria's had a kind of a checkered, a checkered past, but it's a very major exporter to Spain and Italy. There have been some problems in the past, but the big problem in Algeria is very, very slow decision-making on, on investing in new production. So plenty of reserves in Algeria, but very slow development because uh, investment terms are very complicated. The government doesn't, doesn't the, the legal framework is complicated. The financial framework is not attractive. And so with rising domestic consumption in Algeria, um, we have seen an increase in Algerian exports in the last year or so. But we in Oxford, we don't believe that the Algerians have the capability to significantly increase their gas exports to Europe from, from 2021 levels. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Jonathan, Stern, to get a wider picture of, of how the Europeans, and particularly the Germans, can get off this dependence on Russian gas, which they've said they're going to do, it takes a while to build LNG terminals. It takes over a decade to build nuclear plants, and the Germans shut down their nuclear plants after Fukushima. Is anybody talking about wind energy? Because that's something you could build wind farms relatively quickly, couldn't you? And the Germans have built a lot of wind, and they built quite a lot of solar as well. But the problem is the scale of the imports of particularly Russian gas. And there, so there's a lead time issue and there's a contractual issue. So Germans have long-term contracts to import gas from Russia, which last into the 2030s. Now, of course, that's really a very long time to phase out um, their dependence on Russian gas. They can reduce it, but uh, the legal contractual framework means that there are risks in relation to phasing it out. And as I mentioned before, um, the impact on the economy of phasing it out very quickly would be pretty devastating. So, yes, there's a lot of debate about what can the Germans do? Could they delay phasing out their, their coal plants? But again, uh, in Europe, we have this very, these very stringent greenhouse gas reduction targets that governments are absolutely signed on to and voters are very concerned about. 
So the situation is not easy. It's not easy to see how to resolve this in relation to phasing out Russian energy and still staying on track for greenhouse gas reduction targets. You know, all of the options are complicated. Um, undoubtedly, they can, be, they can be solved over time, but not in the next year or two. But are there any sort of force majeure aspects of these contracts? After all, Russia is engaged in an aggressive war in Europe. Now, now there are force majeure contracts, but I have, to, I have to correct you. If Russia had declared war on Europe, this would be force majeure. If it had declared war on Germany, this would be force majeure. It hasn't. In fact, it hasn't declared war on anybody. It's conducting a war, but force majeure is a very, very specific thing. <laughs> and the only force majeure in most of these contracts, and I, I'm not going to claim that I've, I've, I've had access to the contracts or that I've read the force majeure clauses, but my understanding is that force majeure only, only comes into practice if facilities are physically destroyed. Then you can claim force majeure. And earlier we were talking about how the pipelines across Ukraine haven't been touched, so... That's right. Or, and, and none of the other pipelines have been touched either. Right. Well, Jonathan, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate the information you've given us. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. And we've been speaking with Jonathan Stern, who's in the UK, where he's a distinguished research fellow and the founder of the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies Natural Gas Research Programme. He's an honorary professor at the Centre for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee. And since 2011, he has been the EU speaker for the EU-Russia Gas Advisory Council and is the author of several books, the most recent of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. We're going to take a brief station break back examining one of the most revealing episodes to emerge from the traumatic events on January the 6th. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General of the United States Justice Department, where he supervised security matters. He is the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Greenberger. Thank you. So, Michael, this story that's now sort of being revived, even though it was first uh, came out last year in a book by Carol Ennigan and uh, Phil Rucker, that in the midst of the January 6th insurrection, when the Secret Service took Mike Pence down into the basement to where his armored limousine was and the convoy of Secret Service vehicles, uh, he refused to get into the vehicle because he thought it was a setup, that the Secret Service were working for Trump and they wanted to spirit him away and he was determined to stay there and certify the election. So it got sort of a, a second wind here in a recent talk that Congressman Jamie Raskin gave at Georgetown where 
He described what happened as a marriage between an inside political coup at the highest level of the administration with street thugs and hooligans and neo-fascists. In other words, the crowd was not necessarily a spontaneous crowd, but they were being directed by the president. And in fact, uh, Raskin basically said this was a coup directed by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. Do you think that this is going to become common knowledge? Yes, I do think it will become common knowledge. I would tell you, uh, you know, I'm in D.C. that uh, the media is filled with this story uh, here. And uh, uh, as you may know, the uh, January 6th committee is going to hold hearings. The hearings are now scheduled for June. And um, I I would expect those hearings would be covered gavel to gavel uh, on a widespread basis on the various news networks uh, and uh, streaming uh, operations. So uh, this is uh, this is uh, has been a shock to the system over the last two days. Uh, I think that the most recent reporting on this. Uh, uh, I think uh, Pence's words were, I'm not going to get in that car. And somebody has said those may become the six most famous wor- words in the American Democratic uh, small d history, uh, because clearly th- they wanted him out of the building. And uh, there is a, 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 an appendage to this story that uh, one high-level Secret Service operative ended up actually working in the White House for Trump. I think he was a deputy chief of staff. And then when Trump uh, left office, he's now back at the Secret Service. But there is an element to this that the Secret Service was uh, in some significant way uh, in cahoots with the effort by Trump to block the certification of the election. And uh, whether it was the entire Secret Service or somebody who was in charge, they wanted Pence out of the building. Now, they have the cover, uh, I think, to some extent, that things were getting dicey. Uh, there, was, there was, as you know, screaming, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence uh, in the uh, development of this story. That was the crowd uh, or the part of the crowd that was in cahoots with trying to stop the certification uh, realized that uh, Pence was not going to cooperate and therefore the crowd uh, uh, not spontaneously but probably by very careful direction uh, started focusing their hostility on Pence, the Vice President of the United States. Pence had the wherewithal to know that he couldn't leave the building because if he left the building, the election wouldn't have been certified as the Constitution requires. And uh, we would have been in a very big mess uh, had January 6th come and gone without the certification of the election. I think it's very ironic that uh, uh, Pence uh, is getting uh, a lot of credit, I think justified credit, for uh, putting jamming up this operation and sticking by the Constitution and doing what he was supposed to do. Uh, 
and his actions, I think, were, it's hard for me to say this, but uh, can be called heroic in sticking by his guns and staying in the building. Well, the crowd was directed to the Capitol by President Trump in his speech at the Ellipse, and in his speech at the Ellipse, he singled out Mike Pence, saying yes. that, you know, you, you basically uh, are on the wrong side, you've done the wrong thing. I can't remember the exact words, but uh, he put a target on his back. Well, no well this, the information that's coming out, you know, the Ellipse is two miles from the Capitol building. So it's hard to create a spontaneous march from uh, the ellipse to two miles away to the Capitol building. And the information that's coming out now is that days ahead of January 6th, it was planned that the crowd would be directed to walk the two miles from the ellipse to the Capitol building. Uh, in other words, that wasn't a natural or spontaneous uh, movement of the crowd, those two miles. This was all pre-planned. And that's the other thing that's coming out of this. You know, this didn't happen spontaneously on January 6th. There was a lot of planning uh, that went ahead of January 6th into how uh, the uh, interference with the certification was going to take place. And the march of those two miles is now turning out to be something that was carefully planned and not spontaneous. So you mentioned the Secret Service guy that Trump gave a cushy job to, Tony Anato. On that day, Keith Kellogg, General Keith Kellogg, who was the National Security Advisor to Mike Pence, ran into Tony Anato in the West Wing. And Anato was in charge of Secret Service operations. And Anato said that Pence detail were planning to move the vice president to Joint Base Andrews, at which point Kellogg said, you can't do that, Tony. Leave him where he is at. He's got a job to do. I know right. you guys too well. You'll fly him to Alaska if you have a chance. Don't do it. He's going to stay there. If he has to wait there all night, he's going to do it. So, my God, that's pretty revealing, isn't it? It's absolutely very revealing. And you know, the history of January 6th, it was shocking when it happened, but we knew a fraction of what we know now, and it was not spontaneous. It was a well-planned operation that maybe even began before the election took place because, you know, it was pretty clear uh, Biden was going to beat, beat Trump, so they knew that the chances were good that they weren't going to win. Uh, but uh, in any event, from the election to January 6th, there was intricate planning that took place. They took over um, the Willard Hotel. They took a, a, a suite of offices over, which was the planning headquarters of how they were going to pull this off. And they went through several scenarios of what they might do. The White House counsel at one point, who also... Uh, did a, 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 a heroic job of vetoing all sorts of plans for alternate electors, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, uh, but they, they had many different strategies, and the final strategy they came down to, because so many others were eliminated, was that they were going to storm the Capitol, drag Pence out, and prevent the certification of the election. And uh, uh, 
it turns out that, you know, Pence comes out of this uh, as a heroic uh, figure because he knew what was afoot and he uh, knew what he had to do constitutionally. And he and uh, those around him who were loyal to him stood by their guns. Well, obviously, since Raskin told some of this story at Georgetown, that the January 6th committee has all this information and a lot more, right? That's the assumption. They have a lot of information. Uh, you know, these uh, they just got uh, possession of uh, these texts that were back and forth to Mark Meadows that are filled with uh, uh, the, the days leading up to January 6th with the the planning that was going on. Uh, <laughs> They are well armed with information. I think their task now is to get the hearing off the ground. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the hearing has been delayed. A lot of people have been upset about the delay that let's get this over with. Um, I think they're doing a very careful uh, operation and just dealing with all the information they have and organizing it is no easy feat. But when those hearings begin, I think uh, uh, they will be another communication of the intricate details that the Trump operation was going through to essentially end the democracy. Because, you know, if, if we can't elect a president, uh, what can we do? And uh, it, uh, it was a clear and present danger on January 6th and all that we can say now is that we we have the two 2022 election, the 2024 presidential election. There is a lot at stake in these elections because, uh, for example, electing Trump again as president uh, will be right back where we feared we would be on January 6th. Well, this character, Tony Onado, he's the same person who we've learned from recent uh, release of texts that he informed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows shortly before the January 6th insurrection about the prospect of violence. Yes, that's that's right. And uh, Meadows said something, well, we'll look at it. And of course, not only did they not look at it, but they fomented it. Uh, and uh, uh the Secret Service operative, uh, a lot of attention is focused on him, and a lot of people are quite upset that he's uh, he left the White House to go right back to the Secret Service. And in the in these recent days, there are a lot of questions being raised about the loyalty of the Secret Service or large portions of the Secret Service, and that's going to have to be looked at as well. Well, Pence at the time, when he was told to get into the car and he refused to, his, the head of his detail was a guy called Tim Geibels, and he asked twice asked Pence to evacuate the Capitol, and Pence refused. I'm not leaving the Capitol, he told him. And the last thing the vice president wanted was the people attacking the Capitol to see this 20-card motorcade exactly. fleeing. Yeah which would vindicate the uh, insurrectionists. And, and he said, Pence said to his head of his uh, Secret Service detail, I'm not getting in the car, Tim. I trust you, Tim, but you're not driving the car. 
if I get in that vehicle, you guys are taking off, I'm not getting into that car. Yep. So that's about as clear as it gets, isn't it? Absolutely. He didn't, he didn't trust the Secret Service, at least. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, I uh, for those of us who uh, were not supportive of Trump and worried about Trump and now are even more worried about Trump, one would have thought that Pence was a piece of Trump, but he wasn't. He stood his ground, and uh, uh, the country is indebted to him that he saw his duty as certifying the election as constitutional duty, and he carried it out uh, against so many obstacles, uh, including obstacles to his well-being. It is incomprehensible, isn't it, though, Michael, that... Uh these insurrectionists in the House, these, I mean, the face of the Republican Party now is Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt and Paul Gosar and these characters. I mean, we have to sort of remember that when they finally did certify the vote, half of the, I think it was over half of the Republicans in the House refused to certify the vote. Yes. Even yes. though they have been attacked and physically threatened and their office where they worked was yes. desecrated and defecated. Yes. Well, listen, uh, this just shows that a lot is at stake. Uh, personally, I'm somewhat aggravated by the fact that uh, there's just almost an assumption, not only by Republicans, by Democrats, that uh, we're going to the Democrats are going to lose the uh 2022 election. Uh, I think uh, uh, if effective communication is made to the American people, and I think these January 6 hearings will be part of that, uh, the American people have to understand that they're uh, they're going to be giving up their democracy by turning it over to uh, Trump and his followers. Uh, and uh, there's nothing nothing less is at stake than the future of the American democracy, uh, both in 2022 and obviously 2024, the presidential election. And I hope when that's laid on the table that uh, clearly that uh, we will be uh, we will be surprised at the outcome of the midterm elections. Um, you know, it's come to the point that some of these people are going to be that you mentioned will be chairs of committees uh i don't know what this lawsuit to, to disqualify uh marjorie uh, green is going to end up doing but if she's not disqualified and she's elected uh the republicans have said if they gain control she will be brought in and she will uh, have uh, committee chairmanships so there's so much at stake and, uh, this is the woman, the woman who, in her text, called for martial law, which was a part of the plan. The whole plan was to get Pence and even the, even the rest of the lawmakers out of the building so they can't certify the vote, and then throw it to the House of Representatives, where the Republicans have a majority because of the, it operates on the number of states that are controlled by the parties. And then there was talk also of martial law, of saying that, that Antifa was responsible, etc. Right. In her text, Marjorie Taylor Greene spelt martial law, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. <laughs> yes. So 
we're dealing with the idiocracy along with American fascists. I mean, this yes. is unbelievable. Yes. But in the last minute here, let me just mention again the speech that Raskin made uh, at Georgetown University where he pledged that the House Committee investigating January the 6th would, quote, blow the roof off the House. So that's what you're suggesting, right, Michael, that this is going to be explosive enough that it f may actually get the attention of the American people and help the Democrats in the midterms. Yes, that's what I'm suggesting. And we need to get the attention of the American people. Um, this is uh, this is a this was a dramatic moment in the American dem democratic history, and we escaped by the skin of our teeth. Uh, who would have thought that uh, Pence would end up being the hero of the day? But he was, and uh, if we uh, can't keep uh, the House and the Senate in the hands of people who support democratic principles, uh, we're in we're in big trouble. And by that democratic principles, that small d. Small d principles, exactly. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Michael Greenberger. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Securities at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the possibility Putin wants to expand the war into Moldova following bombings that Zelensky claims are FSB provocations in false flag operations. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Katz, the Director of Democracy Initiatives and a Senior Fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. From 2014 to 2017, he was a Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau at the United States Agency of International Development, and prior to that served as a Staff Director of the Europe Subcommittee on the House Committee of Foreign Affairs and as a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary in the International Organizations Affairs Bureau at the United States Department of State. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Katz. Good to be here. So today, President Putin warned of foreign interference in Ukraine, in the war in Ukraine, saying that there would be a lightning-fast response. Russia will use tools no one else can boast of having if anyone creates unacceptable threats. Then, of course, Zelensky then accused the special services, uh, meaning the FSB, of trying to sort of stage a provocation in Moldova. So is there any sense then, Jonathan, you, you know the country in Moldova, which I think most people don't know anything about, myself included. Is there a feint going on here? Are the Russians planning on using Transnistria as a, as a launching pad to attack the Ukrainians from the West? Or is this merely a device to d try and divert Ukrainian troops away from 
the defense of Odessa? Uh, it's I think it's uh, it's even more complicated than that. Uh, you know, Russia has long sought Mr. Putin to uh, to to keep uh, countries former Soviet states. Now this is three decades past in his orbit. Uh, of course, what we're seeing in Ukraine, uh, the war that took place in Georgia in 2008, and, and previous to that was a conflict in Moldova, um, which created this space called Transnistria Pro-Russian, where there were 1,500 Russian troops uh, sitting in Moldova. Transnistria is not recognized by anybody as a country around the world, uh, but it represents a space in which Russia controls, uh, both through military means uh, but also economically and through disinformation and propaganda. And they have long sought to keep Moldova from in further integrating uh, with the Euro-Atlantic uh, community, in particular the EU, and have long sought to destabilize Moldova internally. And that has been an effort to uh, to ensure that there were never there was never leadership, uh, really credible leadership in Moldova to make this post, uh, Soviet transition three decades ago. And so Moldova has been faced a lot of corruption, uh, leaders that were either oligarchs or close to Mr. Putin. And over the last couple of years, this has changed dramatically. There's a pro-Western, pro-democratic leader named Maya Sandu, uh, who's the president of Moldova. And so Russia has a history of trying to undermine these pro-democracy pro-Western uh, leaders in Moldova as a, as a long-term strategy of disinformation, undermining economic engagement, including uh, cutting off trade at various times in relationship with Moldova. Uh, Putin has sought to achieve his objectives there. So fast forward, we have this conflict in, in Ukraine, and Moldova is the most vulnerable country outside of Ukraine to potential Russian military involvement. It's also strategically located uh, parts of Moldova, including uh, bordering the Odessa region uh, and, and sort of the southwest part of, of Ukraine. And it's particularly important uh, because um, we're seeing a lot of Ukrainian refugees leaving, going to Moldova. Over 400,000 Moldo uh, Ukrainian refugees have come to Moldova. 100,000 have stayed in Moldova. And so it's vulnerable right now, not only because of the threats of Mr. Putin, but there is a strain on their economy, uh, largely due to rising energy costs. Uh, we should not forget that Moldova is almost 100% dependent on Russian energy and, in this, and also dependent on energy produced in this breakaway uh, region of Transnistria. So it, it, is, it is a real possibility that Mr. Putin, who has sought to uh, recreate this Soviet uh, Union, uh, this empire that is in his head, um, is, is a priority. And of course, Moldova was formerly part of that. So it's quite vulnerable. Um, and right now, we're seeing the majority of the fighting occurring in the Donbass. Uh, but over the last couple of days, uh, what we've seen in Moldova is a couple of different explosions in Transnistria, uh, one close to security services, um, in Tiraspol, this is part of Transnistria, uh, and then uh, and some radio towers as well. And then just today, a bridge close to the border of Moldova uh, going over uh, uh, a river, a uh, really important river, uh, was attacked with cruise missiles. And I think there's a lot of speculation 
about and concerns about the potential for Russia to act militarily to both destabilize Moldova internally to create diversion. But we also know that there has been discussion, including from some Russian generals, as we've seen over the last couple of days, about trying to create a land bridge uh, really from Russia all the way across, uh, you know, through Mariupol to Crimea and then all the way through to Moldova. And I think we should, and what we hear in the international community from the United States is that everybody is taking these threats very seriously and are speaking directly to the Moldovan government uh, to ensure that that there remains stability, peace, um, and that fighting doesn't come to Moldova. But could the Moldovans defend themselves? They have a pro-Western, pro-European uh, leader in Maya Sandu, the other guy who's making life miserable for her in the way that Donald Trump is making life miserable for the incumbent president. We have Joe Biden, Igor Dodin, in the parliamentary elections. It was split four ways. One of one of the four, of course, was this guy called Elan Saw, a, a center of a billion-dollar banking scandal. And obviously that is, has the fingerprints of what Putin offers, which is gangster government. And Dodin has been basically trying to overturn a free and fair election that Maya Sandu won in the presidency. So how solid is that government and what kind of military assets do they have? Could they resist a Russian invasion? Yeah. Uh, one, it's it's a government that not only won a presidential election, uh, Maya Sandu, but her party won legislative elections fairly convincingly. That doesn't mean that the forces... You mentioned uh, Alain Shore, um, who's one of the corrupt oligarchs that has, has really played a role at holding Moldova back from democratic transition, mar you know, market-oriented economy, uh, Euro integration. So he, those forces still remain, those oligarchs. Uh, some are connected to Putin, some are not. Uh, and then in addition to that is the old socialist parties that are connected uh, to, uh, to the Kremlin. Mr. Dodon, of course, is one of them. And, uh, you know, both both of those oligarchs and also uh, the Dodon party uh, socialists lost significantly in elections because Moldovans wanted to have this transition to a party and a government that would pass the type of reforms that they need to uh, further integrate them uh, with the EU. And of course, Maya Sandu just a few days ago handed off a questionnaire uh, and is moving forward on the beginning, we hope, many of us hope, will be the start of negotiations for membership in the EU. So on one hand, on, on the issue of reforms and democracy, this is the right government to do it. They have a majority in parliament. They have the right president and people to do it and strong support from partners externally. On the security side, they're vulnerable. Um, it is not a country that has... It, it is it, within its uh, constitution, within its government, it's a neutral country, it does not seek to join uh, NATO. Um, and so it is vulnerable because of years of security neglect at home because of corruptions. And that's one of the things when we speak to Moldovan leaders now, we had recently had the foreign minister Moldova in Washington, was how to strengthen their security uh, forces and services, you know, how to uh, make sure that they have the right type of intelligence support. Um, even in the present, uh, President Biden's budget this year, um, he asked for a million dollars 
um, in uh, military training. Uh, there's ongoing relationship between the North Carolina uh, Guard and Moldovan military. And so more can be done to strengthen uh, security in Moldova, but they are absolutely vulnerable. And that is why you've seen a number of American and uh, American and European leaders going to Moldova on the humanitarian issue, but also raising uh, flags about the, the military and security concerns. Uh, and, and it's got one neighbor to the south, Romania, uh, that is uh, that plays a significant role. Um, it's a NATO member state, EU member state, and, and the Romanians are concerned about this very the security concerns about what may be a conflict that shifts over into another border of theirs as well. So the Russians, as you mentioned, the deputy commander who recently talked about Transnistria and, and that land bridge across the Black Sea, they already basically, if they had to take Mariupol, I keep saying they have, and, and that's disputed, but they pretty much shut off the Sea of Azov and they have a naval blockade in the Black Sea, which prevents Ukraine from functioning uh, in terms of imports and exports. But the Black Sea fleet is further offshore because of the missiles that sank the, the flagship, the Moskva. But could they do an amphibious landing in uh, uh, Moldova and then link up? There's only 1,500 troops in, in Transnistria and then come at the Ukrainians from the west. Military analysts um, that we're speaking to think that you know the bulk of the fighting right now is what we're seeing in the Donbass, and that the the outcome of what takes place there will largely shape what Russia is going to do elsewhere in Ukraine. And I think that the the likelihood that that those fifteen hundred troops could create that that land bridge without being met without with resistance without resistance. Um, I don't think that's that's accurate. So uh, for many who think, of course, you may see shelling of Odessa. Russia has capabilities to hit Ukrainian cities, but not to uh, take Ukrainian cities. Uh, but that may be something that changes uh, when you have uh, when you have an outcome of what's taking place in the Donbass. And that's why I think that that many, you know, on the on the European side, NATO and the U.S. are really watching this carefully and thinking through how best to support Moldova and its security right now. But, you know, we've already seen over the last couple of days, we understand that, you know, as I mentioned, cruise missiles hitting bridges uh, in, in the Odessa region close to Moldova, and next to it, uh, adjacent to it, uh, highlights the point that Russia can strike where in, in significant ways where they want, but holding territory, uh, given the uh, supply line challenges that Russia has had militarily, uh, makes it extraordinarily difficult for them to make that type of landing, hold Odessa, um, and then create that type of land bridge with Moldova. But I think as we've seen, uh, Mr. Putin is willing to commit war atrocities. He threatens the use of nuclear weapons. And he, you know, I think, you know, we, we should not discount what he might do if he feels like he is not winning or can't win the war. And Moldova, along with the military threats at the moment, it also has a refugee influx from 
Ukraine. Yeah. It also has a big diaspora in Romania, right, that contributes a lot of money to this otherwise pretty impoverished state. You, you spent time there in terms of trying to deal with this economy. How viable is it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, one, one, it's a wonderful country to travel to and sort of highly recommend going to Moldova when, when obviously when the security isn't like it is. But having worked at USAID, we had a number of, of projects uh, supporting uh, the, the type of um, integration with Europe that was really important in a number of sectors uh, from, uh, from textiles to agriculture to the wine industry, which is one of the oldest in the world, uh, to tourism. And uh, Moldovans are entrepreneurial. Uh, the the biggest challenge that they have faced and something that this government has really been dealing with is it needed to have an independent judiciary to, to counter corruption, uh, to have a government in place that's fully committed to its EU integration process. And uh, it does rely heavily on remittances. Um, you have a, a significant percentage of the of Moldovan population outside of the country uh, that is sending remittances back. So that's a really important part of the Moldovan economy. But if you look ahead, if it was a member uh, of the EU, as it's seeking its EU membership, that would dramatically alter the economic course for Moldova. And they're doing the right things right now, this current government. And, uh, you know, but, you know, this is a difficult moment given uh, how uh, gas and energy has been manipulated by the Kremlin. Uh, and the fact that they have these refugees and instability. And one thing we didn't mention was Ukraine is a significant trading partner for Moldova and the, and the Ukrainian economy has been incredibly hard hit by the current conflict. So that has an impact on Moldova and other countries in the region uh, that trade and engage economically uh, with, with, uh, with Ukraine. And, and it's good to see that partners, including the EU and the US, are, are looking at providing the type of economic assistance needed right now to support Moldova during this tumultuous time. Well, Jonathan Cass, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good to speak to you. And we've been speaking with Jonathan Katz, who's the director of the Democracy Initiatives and a senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. From 2014 to 2017, he was a deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau of the United States Agency of International Development. And prior to that, served as a staff director of the Europe Subcommittee of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and as a senior advisor to the assistant secretary in the International Organization Affairs Bureau at the United States Department of State. This has been back. This has been background briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave And this land here in the creek One time, one night One more light goes on